event. It's Q Commons. It's going to be a nationwide experience that will simulcast a few weeks after the fact so that more of us can be there. It'll be after the 11 a.m. service in the D.C. on a very controversial topic, a topic that many of us, we don't know how to talk about. And some people have said to me, Drew, why do you want to talk about racial inequality? That's such a political thing. And I said, no, that's actually a very biblical thing to address. In fact, I think many of us don't know how to talk about injustice. Uh, we don't know how to talk about the broken systems of our nation. Uh, we don't know how to talk about racism and hate. And we typically think that that's just in the realm of the political landscape. Well, God's got a lot to say about how he longs for us to live. And we want to equip you how to engage in these very difficult topics in a biblical way. That wherever you fall in the political spectrum, that there would be a higher truth that would transcend all of it, that as citizens of heaven, that we would be the answer, that we would be the hope, that we would be God's plan A for bringing hope and healing to our nation. So if some of you are saying, what is happening to our nation? I want you to show up on that Sunday. If some of you think, well, it, you know, it's just it only affects some people, it doesn't affect me, I want you to show up on that Sunday. And the reason why we did it on a Sunday after the 11 o'clock service is I want people who think that it has nothing to do with them, I want them to show up. You see, we could have done it midweek on a Thursday night, and I think we would have just been preaching to the choir. People who care about these topics would show up. I hope that we lure you with food in the Discipleship Center, which will be there. Maybe some of you will bring friends and neighbors, colleagues perhaps, for that. And I hope that you stay and you are challenged, that you are sharpened, that actually you leave with a greater sense of how God longs for us to live. Because we as a church, we long for the revival of every person, every person, every person, every person, every neighborhood and every city in the name of Jesus. So I hope that you would be there. Mark your calendars, November 12th. It's a free event. Uh, we'll be charging for food so you can enjoy that. But so many things are happening before that, after that, but I just wanted to give a special note to that. Well, before I get into the sermon, how about them Dodgers? Wow. Okay. So I know some of you, it's your first time here, and you're like, isn't this church? Why are we talking about the Dodgers? Some of you, last week was your first time, and you're two weeks in a row, and you're like, two weeks in a row this guy talks about the Dodgers? It's been 29 years, I mean, since, yeah, Okay. Yes, yes. <laughs> we, got a, we got a Stroh's fan here. Is that what's happening? Astro's fan? Yeah? Oh, no, not you. You don't want to be known in public. You know, yeah, okay. But a Texas boy in the house, right? We love you. We love you. Uh, so if you were here last week, you perhaps heard me share that, you know, the Dodgers are actually helping give a, a real-life cultural application to the sermon series that we're going through, Hidden Glory. And you know, the word glory in the Hebrew language is the word kabod. You want to say it? Kabod. Every week I've been saying, why don't you say kabod? It's a great word to say, but that word glory, which maybe some of you, you picture, you know, uh, a million part harmonies from angels or uh, the full spectrum of light. The word glory literally means heaviness, weightiness, significance. And I've been sharing how we are moved by things that are heavier than us. 
If you were to throw, you know, a little toothpick at me uh, because it weighs less than me, I wouldn't be moved by it. But if you were to take a, a big Steinway, right, and you were to pull it up, somebody said, well, could we actually try that? Uh, no, because the illustration ends with if you were to swing it from the ceiling and if I didn't get out of the way and if it hit me, because it's heavier than me, I would be moved by it. You see, we are moved by things that are heavier than us. And as we go throughout life, there are some weighty things that we deal with. There are heavy things that we deal with. You lose your job, that's a heavy thing. He cheats on you, that's a heavy thing. The doctor says, I'm sorry, it's inoperable. That's a heavy thing. Your accountant says, you're going to have to declare bankruptcy. That is a heavy thing. There are heavy things that we deal with publicly. There are heavy things that we deal with privately. And there's moments where I know that just a word comes up in my sermon and it's so heavy and it's so, so hard that people, they shut down. And I shared last week about how the Dodgers had uh, a lot of hidden glory on their bench. People who you didn't think would make an impact, who weren't signed for the top of the salary cap, were actually making a huge impact. And they were actually showing up and being the star players. And in a moment, we're going to go to Nehemiah in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, and we're going to take a look at what God has to say about how we handle opposition. And that's why i got to bring up the Dodgers again. They went down one to two in the series. And people around the nation were, were blaming the coach, the manager, and saying, why are you using the bullpen so quickly? And gosh, this and gosh, that. They're going to lose. And yet they showed up last night. And they had a chance, as the sports analyst said, to show baseball fans what they're made of. And what's so interesting throughout life, that phrase is used so often, you know, when you're up against the ropes, when you go through a tough time, when you go through the fire, when you lose your job, when your health is shaken, when you experience that thing, that's when you get to see what you're really made of. That's the phrase we use in culture. You see, it's in times of opposition that actually the things that we worship are made clear. That in times of opposition, the things that we think will give us peace or joy or happiness or security, those things are made clear. It's in times of opposition that you realize who you really are. So we're going to take a look at Nehemiah. If you have your Bibles, why don't you open it up to Nehemiah chapter 4. Uh, a pew Bible is in front of you if you didn't bring one. It's that red book. If you don't own a Bible, please take one home with you. Would rather you have it than it sit in the pews all week. Page 376 is... The reference in our pew Bible. Ron, I jumped the gun there. I'm sorry, brother. He's always the first one there. What page is it? Just want to make sure. Just want to make sure. I'm going to read for us verses 1 through 14. And you're going to hear this uh, building of a wall. You might wonder, well, what's this wall for? So in, in Jerusalem, this was God's city. Uh, the walls of God's city, this place where they believe that would be their place on earth where they could reflect and represent what it was like to have God as king for the nation of Israel to have a home. The walls had been broken down. They had been destroyed by enemies. And they had this task ahead of them that they, put, they felt God had put on their heart to rebuild home, to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. 
Let me read beginning in verse 1 of Nehemiah 4. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he mocked the Jews. He said in the presence of his associates and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore things? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish it in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones of that? Tobiah, the Ammonite, was beside him, and he said, that stone wall they're building, any fox going up on it would break it down. So Nehemiah prayed, hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn their taunt back on their own heads and give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover their guilt. Do not let their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have hurled insults in the face of the builders. So we rebuilt the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height. For the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and the gaps were beginning to be closed, they were very angry and all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. So we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. But Judah said, the strength of the burden bearers is failing, and there is too much rubbish so that we are unable to work on the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see anything before we come upon them and kill them and stop the work. When the Jews who lived near them came, they said to us ten times, from all the places where they live, they will come up against us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I, Nehemiah, stationed the people according to their families, with their swords, their spears, and their bows. After I looked these things over, I stood up. I said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your kin, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. This, my friends, concludes the reading of God's Word. So I think it was about a year ago uh, that Sid Taylor, Sid here right now? I saw her earlier today, I believe. Sid Taylor sent uh, an email to me, and she says, hey, there's a great Bible study, great Bible study that Rick Warren has created on uh, the book of Nehemiah, and there's just one chapter I want you to read, and it's called How Leaders Handle Opposition, and it was this section right here. And some of the points that he made were too good for me to say, I've got to be more creative to come up with some of my own points. And so if you ever want to follow up with that, that Rick Warren resource on how leaders handle opposition, I would love to give you a copy. But for those of you that are taking notes, we're going to take a look at three things, three overarching topics. The first is this. We're going to take a look at the tactics of opposition. The tactics of opposition. Second, the effect of opposition the effect of opposition. And then three, if you're taking notes, the right response to opposition. The right response to opposition. Here's the deal. You've all got stuff going on in your life, individually, as families, as couples, uh, in your workplace, as followers of Christ, as humans. I mean, we, 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 to go through life means that you experience these things. You have opposition from people. You have opposition from circumstances. 
health, all these things going on in your life. What I hope for, what I pray for is that you would leave here today being able to identify opposition in your life, to be able to realize and to acknowledge what it's doing to you, and then finally how you can respond to it and actually thrive in the midst of that opposition. So let me walk through a number of these things. First, the the tactics of opposition. First, there's ridicule. Take a look at verse 1 if you put your Bibles away in Nehemiah 4. Immediately, the, the, the enemy, those that are opposed to the nation of Israel rebuilding God's home, it says there in verse 1, Now when Samlot heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he mocked the Jews. Now, ridicule is one of the most effective tools to disarm people, to disengage people, to discourage people. People actually train Others in debate that if you can ridicule a person's point, their platform, their body of knowledge, that you can get a leg up on the other person. Likely there's people in your life that ridicule you. And I'm not just talking about uh, things, personal projects that you have in your own life, but, but things that you believe God is calling to you. That God is longing for you to have more integrity in the workplace that people are ridiculing you for that, that you are trying to break free from addiction and there's people in your life that are ridiculing you for that, that some of you, just the fact that you're here on a Sunday, you don't want to share with certain people in your life because you know that they're going to ridicule you. We have people ridiculing us as a church on Yelp and on Facebook, on social media. It's the world that we live in. And there's that old nursery rhyme, you know, on the playground that had it so wrong, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones. It should be written, the tail end of that. And words, they have the possibility to utterly destroy me. Because isn't it true that people, whether we know them or not, people that, you know, are close to us or that we've never even heard, you know, three times removed say something, it seems like for every ten compliments you hear one thing that where somebody ridicules you and it just latches on like cancer. And when you can see it for what it is, you can begin to see that that leads to some greater tactics, that there's resistance. Take a look at verse 7. When Sambalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and the gaps were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. Verse 8, and all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. Don't be surprised if people ridiculing you for your faith, for following Jesus, that people ridicule Christianity or God's people. Don't be surprised if they get organized that if actually they bond together and form organizations and nonprofits and give resources to attacking the very thing that we believe God is calling us to. Don't be surprised if there's organized resistance. We live with such luxury here and comfort in the United States, but there's parts of the world where people are killed systematically for their faith, where governments are approving of the killing of Christians. And we forget that in nice, comfortable Los Angeles. And we think that, you know, when somebody kind of makes fun of us or posts on Facebook, well, I'm being persecuted. You have no idea what persecution's like. So don't be surprised if ridicule comes, if organized resistance comes, and if rumor comes. Take a look at verse 11 and 12. And our enemy said, 
They will not know or see anything before we come upon them and kill them and stop the work. When the Jews who lived near them came, they said to us ten times over, from all the places where they live, they will come up against us. One of the most destructive things that the opposition, that, that enemies can do is to spread rumors, to spread lies. As Mark Twain once said, that a lie can make its way all the way around the world before the truth can wake up and put its shoes on. I have a mentor that says that leaders, on average, under-communicate as often as they should, ten times to one. And in the absence of communication, in the absence of the truth, rumors can spread. And in verse 11 and 12, there's this rumor that's spread that if they do this, they're going to get killed. They're going to be creamed. They're going to be smoked. And the people living near their enemies actually heard this and actually began to, to spread the lie, spread the rumor, spread the the thought, and it began to be exaggerated. In the Hebrew language where it says, and they shared ten times, it's this image of a multiplying effect, ten times over. It's that game of telephone. Boy, and I've heard some interesting things since I've now, I mean, first time I've ever been a senior pastor and head of staff. I mean, some of the rumors that kind of make their way around and make its way back to me, I'm like, oh, people think I'm going to do that? I don't even know how I would do that if I even wanted to do that. I mean, that's crazy. I mean, I've heard, uh, Drew, we, we think you're going to turn this into a Baptist church, <laughs> a, a Pentecostal church, uh, a non-denominational church. Uh, we're going to be the next Hillsong. We're going to be the next reality. We're going to be the next fill in the blank. And actually, if you were to add those up and take a look at all of them, actually, they kind of mutually cancel each other out. But in the absence of clear communication, I get it, actually. And I look back on my first three and a half years of leadership, and the biggest thing that I need to grow in is clear communication. Not just in my preaching, but in my leadership. This is something that the pastors know, our lead team knows, my staff knows, the personnel committee knows, our session knows, and some of you in the congregation are like, it's about time, we've known it the whole time, you know. That's an area that I want to grow in. And we've had to do some very difficult leading, and those of you members who were part of that congregational meeting earlier, we talked about some very difficult things that we had to lead through and to navigate through. And a great image that was given to me by one of our former elders, Kim, she shared that, you know, pilots, they have to aviate, navigate, and communicate. And I can focus all my energy on aviate and navigate. If I don't communicate well, it is so easy for rumor to spread. And perhaps it's true in your own life where there's rumors that are being spread about you in your workplace, within the school that your kids are a part of, within the industry. It has a huge effect on you. And that's the second point that I want to make under the broader umbrella of what are the effects of opposition? There's one verse that actually holds it all together. Verse 10. Why don't you take a look? But Judah said, The strength of the burden bearers is failing, and there is too much rubbish, so that we are unable to work on the wall. Right there you see four things. They're halfway done with the wall, by the way. You see that in verse 6. They had a mind to work. They're halfway there. They're halfway there. They're making progress. There's advancements. People are showing up. 
There's growth, there's positivity. And yet there's ridicule, there's resistance, there's rumor. And how do they respond? Those four things right there with fatigue, with frustration, with failure, and with fear. It's so easy for us when we're doing something for God to all of a sudden halfway through the project to get tired, to be filled with fatigue, to get frustrated. There's still so much more to go. To experience failure, to actually have fear that we're not going to do it. And those four things, they lead to discouragement. Discouragement. The removal of courage. Now, I love Brene Brown, and I love her writing, all of her teaching, her podcasts, and she defines and reminds us of the root of the word courage. You know, courage has a kind of a Latin prefix there, cur, which means heart. For those of you that speak Spanish, corazón is heart. You see, the original meaning of the word courage wasn't just an act of bravery. It was a willingness to share your whole heart, to put yourself out there, to put yourself on a limb, to bring the fullness of who you are, warts and all, mistakes and all, weaknesses and all, to put yourself out there, to be willing, as Teddy Roosevelt once said, to be the person in the arena, in the midst of the critic, to show up, to show up. And it's so easy for the opposition to cause us to be discouraged. And perhaps some of you in your own life, you've been trying to follow Jesus and there's things in your life that you've wanted to put in place. And you have a half-done project that stalled out. You've made it halfway through the Bible in a year. You can't, you can't finish it. You, you've tried to make it a whole month Staying pure in that one area of your life, you could barely make it past the first half of the first day. You've committed to, to reconcile your relationship with your parents or a loved one, and, and it's stalled out. Maybe you've wanted to lead your business in a way with integrity, and you've kind of stalled out. Or maybe you want to be an actor or actress or a musician, or you're, or you're creative, and you want to actually put forth things that actually reflect your relationship with God, and you're kind of halfway through it, and you're filled easily with fatigue, with frustration, with failure, with fear, you're discouraged. It's so natural. And that's the turning point. That's the moment where everything hangs in the balance. The greatest films, the greatest books, the greatest plays, there's always that moment in the story where it can go either way. Will they make it or not? Will they survive or not? Will they reconcile or not? The series is tied 2-2. Will the Dodgers win or not? You know, it all hangs in the balance. And it's so easy to retreat. It's so easy to just hide. You know, one of the things that's essential is that we have a right response to opposition. Not only do we know it for what it is, not only do we realize what it does to us and it's actually paralyzing us way more than we think, but actually when we understand those things that actually we can respond in a way that will actually cause us to thrive and those around us. And four things for you. First is this, to respect the opposition. 
Now, when I say respect, I'm not talking about respect the way you think of respect. I'm not talking about if somebody's pounding you, pounding you, pounding you, pounding you, and just clocking away at you, and finally they get tired and they slow down. Respecting them isn't saying, oh, oh, are you tired? Here's some Gatorade. Let me, let me wipe off the, the sweat. Oh, oh, is there anything I can do for you? I'm sorry, you're t- that's not the type of respect I'm talking about. I'm talking about acknowledging and realizing that there is an opponent. It would be crazy for you to step into a boxing ring and not realize that there's somebody there who wants to knock your brains out. Wouldn't it be crazy to get into a a boxing ring and be like, whoa, this is nice. Wow, all these people, they're cheering my name. Wow, I see my my face up on the, the big screen and... Wow, that person's huge, but wow, look at their mitts. Wow, they're shiny. I mean, wouldn't it be crazy? And yet we do that all the time. We show up at work, we show up on vacation, we go into our neighborhoods, we show up at church, and we forget that there's opposition. You have to acknowledge and understand and have a healthy respect for the fact that there is opposition. There are things that want to rip you away from your relationship with Jesus. There's people that want to rob you of your joy. There's people and things and systems that want to absolutely destroy you. Destroy you. Well, what are they? Ephesians 2.2 makes it very clear. Ephesians 2.2 and 3. Talks about the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world. Just worldly systems. We have such a value for comfort, for example. Show me the Bible where God values comfort. It's not there. In fact, every example of comfort, God says, now be very careful. If you get comfortable, be very careful because you're going to forget who God is. So the world says you should be comfortable. You should order your life and surround your life in such a way so that you would be comfortable. It's all about you and your comfort. That's the enemy that is ripping you away from a life that God is longing for you to thrive in. When the world says it's all about you, you should actually get ahead. Use people, abuse people so that you would get ahead. Do whatever it takes for you to make a name for yourself. That's what the world says. If you listen to that, if you follow that, you're allowing the opposition to crush you. And we see it throughout the world. A selfishness, a hate, uh, I'm right, uh, you're wrong. A, a demarcation of an us versus them. That, that's the way of the world. That's our opposition. But even more than that, it's the flesh. It's our, it's our earthly desires. It's our selfishness. We're actually, we begin to use people. We use the church and we use God for ourselves. And we get addicted to things. And we lift up the things that we think are best for us and we're willing to crush other people. We can fall into this your life for mine sort of mentality. And you've got to realize that there's things in your life that are ripping you away from God's best for your life. That in some ways you are your worst enemy. That my part of me that I haven't given over to Christ, whether knowingly or unknowingly, that that part of me, that sinful nature of me that aims for the wrong things, that settles for the wrong things, that that longs for the wrong things, that actually that's getting in the way of God's best for me. It's, It's actually getting in the way of God's best for my leadership in this church. 
that there's an enemy that we have to wake up to. That's us. It's not just those people out there. It's us in here. The world, the flesh, the devil. Scripture is clear that God has an enemy. Scripture says that he's a lion that goes around prowling. He's a lion on a leash, as it's often said. You see, Jesus has defeated Satan, but his timetable spans eternity. And one day he's going to be ultimately destroyed. But right now, Scripture says that he is the prince of this world. Then in many ways, I think the devil and the fallen angels, a third of the angels, as it says in Scripture, that are, that are demons, that are fallen angels, they, they can actually just sit back and watch the world and your flesh destroy you. They can, I imagine them just, just kind of sitting back because the world and the flesh can do a lot of things. But what the enemy does is it latches on to the world's ways. You deserve to be comfortable. You deserve to get this thing. You deserve it. That it piles on to the flesh. That a little bit of bitterness can actually grow. A little bit of jealousy can grow. A little bit of uh, deception can grow. And this image of a lion... You've seen those, you know, planet Earth specials, you know, when lions are hunting the gazelles. How do they do it? They chase after, and their goal is to just pull off one from the herd. To just get in enough to pull one off from the herd. And we've got to respect God's enemy to know this, that he would love more than anything for you to withdraw in discouragement, to step away from any Christian community, to kind of walk away from your small group, to walk away from the church, to think that you can do it on your own, and all of a sudden you are out there, you are a lonely island, you're a lone ranger Christian, you're a gazelle out on the edge, and God's enemy wants to pounce on you. Now here's what's true. God says that he will never leave us nor forsake us. He says there's nothing in all of creation that can separate us from his love. That ultimately God's enemy, if we've put our faith and trust in Jesus, he will never destroy us because Jesus always has the last word. But what he can do is he can rob your joy. He can make you ineffective for Christ. He can cause you to be so overwhelmed with fear and doubt and all the things that you actually, you actually miss out on being used by God in such tremendous ways. You've got to respect the opposition of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Take a look at verse 9 of Nehemiah. This is how they respected the opposition. What page was it, brother? 376. 376. I wish you could memorize my Bible and know because I've got a different page. Oh, yeah, that's nice. (laughs) Take a look at verse 9. So we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. We prayed and we guarded the wall. There's a phrase that's used throughout the Bible, watch and pray. Watch and pray. You've got to do the practical thing and you've got to do the prayerful thing. You've heard the story perhaps of the Christian hiker up in Yosemite, walked on a mother bear and cubs. All of a sudden, (gasps) opposition going to be coming my way, right? Do I run or do I pray? Both? There you go. But in a moment, that was good. In a moment, everybody's like, pray, run. They kind of see. Opposition reveals, reveals who we are, right? You do both. You run and you pray. 
You do both. That's what they did. They, they, they worked and they prayed. God is calling every single one of us to respect the opposition in such a way that we would be constant in prayer. That we would constantly arm ourselves with the, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the sword of faith, the sword of truth. All these things that God is longing for us to be active and proactive in. And as you grow in your faith, you can do both those things, the practical things and the prayerful things. Take a look at the second point, to reinforce your weak points. Verse 13. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall and open places, I station the people according to their families with their swords, their spears, and their bows. You know better than anybody else where your weak areas are. You know if you're physically exhausted after a long week of work, what you're tempted to do. You know when you're traveling on business, the places that you could go, you know places on the internet, you know places in your life, you know your weak points. God is saying you've got to acknowledge the fact that they're there and you've got to shore them up. And what's so beautiful about what Nehemiah does is he takes not just individuals to the weak points, he says, go as families. Now the church is a family. And God is calling us to be in community with one another. That we would be in community, that we would be able to reveal our weak points to each other, our shortcomings with each other, and that we wouldn't criticize or judge each other, but we would say, I'm going to pray for you and a me too. And, you know, you can call me, you can text me. I want to be a resource to you and for you. I want to walk this journey with you. That we as a community would shore up those weak points, not only in our individual lives, but in us as a church. Because our church has weak points. And we've got to identify them, and we've got to shore them up. Third, we've got to refuse to quit. Take a look at verse 21. So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from break of dawn until the stars came out. In the midst of opposition, they said, we're going to show up. Day and night, we're going to work. This willingness to show up, that's the true meaning of courage, a willingness to show up to the starting line. I love the fact that Jock Peterson, who hit the three-run home run last night, went to the disabled list twice this season, was actually sent down to the minors this season. He said it was one of the worst years of baseball. He could have quit. He could have not shown up. It would have been so easy for him to do it, yet he refused to quit. And he showed up and he hit a three-run homer. Made a huge difference in the game last night. Cody Ballinger, which we believe is going to be the rookie of the year in the National League, youngest player, I believe, ever to play in the World Series has had one of the worst World Series first three games ever. Strikeout, 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 strikeout. People were saying, take him off, take, put him on the bench. He said this. I love this. One swing of the bat. Just one swing of the bat. Can be all the difference from going from a slump to a hitting streak. One swing of the, what that preach? One swing of the bat. One action, one willingness to show up. One decision to have integrity. One decision to forgive. One decision to give, to show up, to, to be part of a solution. Just, just one thing can make all the difference. He had two doubles last night. He started the rally in the ninth. And that's just a game. It's just a game. Imagine what... That would mean in your life, which is so much more important. 
Would you refuse to quit? Fourth is this. Remember the weight of God's glory. Take a look at verse 14 as we round home. Finish the baseball metaphors. Verse 14. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your kin, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. What's so fascinating is that word afraid, if you have a Bible, whether you own it or you're about to take it home with you, circle that word afraid. Then look at the next sentence, the word awesome. Circle that word. Draw a line between the two of those. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. In the Hebrew language, the original language of the Old Testament, it's the exact same word. Nehemiah says, don't be afraid of them. Be afraid of God. But it's not a afraid of God like he's going to get you, like the boogeyman with Halloween coming up. It's a deep reverence and awe and respect in the same way that you would stand on the edge of the Grand Canyon overwhelmed with the possibility that if you were to fall and it causes you this sense of reverence and awesomeness and a deep respect for what's ahead of you, it's that picture. And what I love about this image right here is that there's weight, there's actually glory to the opposition. There's significance and gravity and weightiness to the opposition. And if you allow it to crush you, it will crush you. But there's an even heavier glory, a heavier weight that is God. So what does this mean practically? This past Tuesday morning, my little five-year-old Judah is going to kindergarten. He's such a social little guy. He always runs ahead of me to the playground. He's so excited. For the first time I saw him on the playground, lining up for kindergarten, and he had tears in his eyes. I think, what's going on? And I go up to him, and, you know, I mean, he is, he's overwhelmed. And he's crying. He's trying to hold it in. He's embarrassed. I'm like, Judah, Judah, what's wrong, sweetie? He says, that boy over there, he's making fun of me. And I'm thinking about this sermon, preparing for it this week, and kind of the weight that we give things in our life. And, I mean, I, I just got down next to him, and I put my arm around him. I said, oh, Judah, I'm so sorry. But I'm going to be praying for you today. And I pray that God's voice would be louder than that voice. That who God says you are would be louder than that. That, that God's promises would be louder than that. You know, the bell rings and I got to get up and I got to go. And I, and I shared it with the, the lead team and our pastors. And, I, and I, I teared up sharing that story. And at the end of the day when I picked him up from school, or actually I saw him at the end of the day after school and I was at home and I said, Judah, how was your day? And he said, oh, it was great. And I said, hey, what was that thing that that boy said to you on the playground? And he looks at me and he's like, I don't remember, Dad. <laughs> Let's go play. And that moment, that little moment, that little microcosm taught me something. And I hope it teaches you something. Do you remember? Do you put all the weight of your, your life in the opposition's corner? Do you allow that to crush you? to disable you, to paralyze you, to prevent you from experiencing and doing the things that God longs you to do? Or do you remember the Lord? Do you allow the weight of what God has said to you? And he says, you are my child. You are mine. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And in Exodus 14, 14, it says, don't even fight because I'm going to fight for you. I'm going to carry you through this. In Romans 8, 28, I'm going to work together for good all these things according to my purposes because I've called you 
in Romans 8, 38 and 39 that nothing in all of creation can separate you from God's love. We've got a great God. We have a God that is heavier than anything else in all of creation, that is glorious in anything in all of creation. And here's the amazing thing as we respond in worship right now is a prayer that Jesus prays in John 17. He says, God, the glory that you've given me, I've given to them. The significance and the weightiness and the importance that you've given me as your son, which, by the way, Hebrews 1 says that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. The image of the invisible God, as Colossians 1 says. Jesus says, this, this glory that you've given me, I've given to every believer. I've hidden it in their life. An importance, a significance, a weightiness, a value, a gravity. And he longs for you to let it shine, to make an impact in this world as individuals and as a community of faith. Let's stand together as we respond and worship. And, and let me pray for us as we continue on. Loving God, we want to remember you, your greatness, your goodness in all the areas of our life that we and you know about. Meet us right now in this moment. Do a healing work that only you can do. In Jesus' name, amen.